our hope in life and death. Christ alone, Christ alone, what is our only confidence? That our souls to Him belong, who holds our days within His hand, not comes apart from His command, and what will keep us to the end, the love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing hallelujah. Welcome to the uh, 1030 service. I'm glad that you guys are here worshiping with us and welcome to the uh, 
people who are worshiping online. If you are watching the live stream, uh, please uh, get a hold of us and let us know that you're watching. Shoot me an email or uh, drop a message in the um, uh, messages on YouTube, and uh, we'd love to know who you are and how we can best serve you. Announcements. I, you, can guys, you guys can look at the notices yourself. There's not anything that's really uh, uh, big and important for me to say. Everything is on schedule today. Youth confirmation right after this ser- uh, worship service uh, prayer meeting tonight. Um, Wednesday evening is uh, The Great Divorce. If you wanted to be a part of that, but you weren't able to get into it this uh, week, it's totally fine. Uh, we talked about chapters one and two this past Wednesday night. We'll talk about chapters three and four this coming Wednesday night. If you want it, it's, it's on Zoom. I guess you could come to our house and hang out with me and Angela if you wanted to. But it's on Zoom. If you want to participate, uh, let me know, and I can give you, uh, give me your email, and I can get you an invite to, uh, to that Zoom meet. Uh, it's really going to be good. The Great Divorce is a really, really fantastic um, um, explanation by C.S. Lewis of the difference between thinking about the world in terms of heaven and then thinking about the world in terms of hell. So let me know if you want to be a part of that. Okay, stand with me. I'm going to open us in prayer, and then we will uh, continue in worship. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we need you to come and meet with us this morning. We thank you for your gift of word and sacrament. We pray that as we gather here and hear your word uh, read, and as we receive your good gifts in the Holy Sacrament, and as uh, we sing praises to you, and we pray to you, and we confess our faith uh, together, that you would meet with us this morning. Father, you know that we don't need more information. You know that we need you. We need your presence, and we need your salvation. And so, Father, give us that for your own glory and for our good, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's pray and confess our sins to God. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserved your temporal and eternal punishment but I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the Gospel of Christ from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn. Oh. 
Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. The epistle reading for this morning, uh, sixth Sunday after Epiphany, is 1 Corinthians 15, 1-20. 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter is about the resurrection of Jesus. And it's a little bit, uh, it's a, you know, Paul says, a, kind of his argument kind of weaves back and forth here at the end. But you'll see that his main argument is this. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we won't rise from the dead either. But Jesus did rise from the dead, so it's guaranteed that those of us who have been baptized in him will rise from the dead. Now, Paul says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, born, he appeared also to me. You can see what Paul's doing there. Like Christianity is not like a leap of faith in the dark. It's not, you just got to believe in something, and I don't know if it's true or not. 
Paul is saying that the resurrection of Jesus is actually not mainly a religious event. It's mainly an historical event. If it didn't happen, then there's no reason for us to get together on Sunday mornings. If it did happen, though, it changes everything. And Paul is saying, go ask these people. You can, Jesus rose from the dead. You can go talk to all these people who saw him. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, any of the other apostles, though it wasn't I, but the grace of God that is with me. So then whether it was I that preached the gospel to you or they that preached the gospel, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise, if it's true that the dead aren't raised. For if the dead aren't raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And then those also who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 6. Glory to you, O Lord. Can I make a real quick comment about this? This is Jesus' sermon on a level place. It's, he starts off with Beatitudes, just like the Sermon on the Mount. Some scholars, uh, the, the kind of scholars, the lo, like sort of the liberal scholars that 100 years ago would say, well, see, this is proof that uh, there's, there's inconsistencies in the Bible. Matthew says it was on the Mount. Luke says it was on the plain. Clearly, they're in disagreement. They don't know what's going on. And they use different words, and so they don't really remember what Jesus said. And so there's contradictions. But, but honestly, the way to look at this is, is the, 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 actually, the best way to look at this is, Jesus is preaching these sermons frequently. If you or I were to follow a politician as he or she stumped around the country looking for votes, you would hear the same speech over and over with various details changed to match up with the context or the, you know, the audience. Jesus is preaching these same sermons quite frequently. This happens to be a record of one that he preached, not on the mountain, but uh, on the plain. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who, were t those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated.
come uh, to the end of Esther here. We're going to read Esther 9 and 10 this morning. Uh, and the, we spent the past few weeks uh, reading through Esther and studying. And you'll see when we get into this, this is, a, this is the last reading, chapters 9 and 10. It definitely slows down. The, the pace of the story has been super fast up until now. And then all of a sudden, it sort of hits a wall. And this chapter is kind of like, it repeats itself. It's kind of convoluted. And I'll talk about why, why it does that in just a minute. So Esther 9 and 10. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, so this is nine months after Esther has gone in to, um, to Ahasuerus to secure uh, salvation for the Jews. Twelve months after the original dice rolling that Haman did to, fi- to figure out when he's going to destroy them. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. That's that's kind of the key key theme theme of the the story of Esther. The reverse occurs. God God loves to flip the script. God loves to reverse the curse. And you got a piece of that in the gospel reading this morning, right? Where the Beatitudes are, blessed are the poor, but woe to the rich. Like, this is what God loves to do. So on the, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed uh, Parsh Andatha, pray for me for the next few seconds, Parsh Andatha, and Dolphon, and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Aradatha, and Parmashta, and Arasai, and Aradai, and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? 
Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Oh, so, so again, I mentioned this last week. They're already dead. Hanged means impaled, put on public display. Up until recently, this is what you did to enemies of the state, is that, uh, you know, in England, up until several hundred years ago, those who would be beheaded would have their heads like displayed on a pike staff on London Bridge. So everybody would walk by and say, don't mess with the king of England. That, that's what's going on here. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. That's the second time that's been mentioned. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. That's the third time that's been mentioned. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th, and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is cast lots, poor is the Persian word for, you know, dice, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the dice, after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them. Remember at the end of chapter 8, a bunch of the pagans converted to, to worshiping the one true God. That without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim shall be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. There's a lot of the, saying the same thing three times, repeating the same thing, just in different forms. Uh, here's the short, very, very short chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, 
to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank, just like Joseph before him, just like Daniel before him. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, why does it slow down so much? Uh, you know, why does it go from the narrative to just kind of hitting a wall and then just repeats itself over and over in different versions? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is that it's, it's, this functions as a summary, kind of like says, this is what happened, this is why it happened, and this went into effect. You end chapter eight, and you really don't know how it's going to end because the Jews have been given permission to defend themselves, but you don't know how it's going to end. Chapter nine and 10 assure us that it did go into effect. The other thing that chapters nine and 10 do is this is by taking the story, the story's moving super fast, and then it stops it, and it sits on it for a long time, chapters 9 and 10, repeats it three times. What it's doing is saying, this story in the past now is going to be a lasting legacy for us. For all the centuries and millennia of, the, of Jews, you are going to celebrate Purim after this. And it slows it down and makes you kind of sit in it for a long time to give you the vibe of, this, is, this, is not, this doesn't end with the story of Esther. This is going to go on and on. In fact, um, um, Jews celebrate Purim to this day. And we could if we wanted to. Uh, uh, Kevin Parviz, his church that we support over in um, University City, uh, the LCMS church that ministers uh, almost exclusively to Jewish Christians and does a lot of Jewish evangelism, they celebrate these festivals every year. And it'd be a cool way for us to go and experience that. Um, and maybe we can do that some year. Or you could do, honestly, you could do that on your own. The other thing it's going to do for us here, though, this morning is, now that we've gotten through Esther, I'm going to, I'm going to say some things that I've said before the past few weeks in Esther, but I'm also, I also would like to focus a little bit on what does this mean? for How can we be people who take and absorb Esther and live as pouring people here now as Christians here in Glen Carbon? I'd like to do that. And so basically two big things I want to talk about this morning. One is the holy war that goes on in, these, in, in chapters 9 and 10, and then the holy victory, and what does it mean for us to live in this holy victory? So, honestly, I've got to do this. We have to talk about holy war, because you know, it describes Jews killing people here, and a lot of us uh, are like, well, is there a go and do that likewise here? Like, do we, why are they doing that? I'm assuming we shouldn't do that to, to, you know, to non-believers. Why are they doing that? So it's important for us to talk about that, not just because I want to make a defense of, this, of, of, of the Bible and why God is asking them to do this, because I want us to, under, and I know you do too, we need to understand what holy war means for us, the war that you and I are involved in right now. So first of all, a couple things here. In, in the Old Testament, God's people are sometimes instructed to kill other people. It's part of the Old Testament. You can't avoid it. It offends, of course, I would say our modern sensibilities, but I think it just offends human sensibilities that uh, God would ask other people, God would ask his people to kill other people. Is this evil? Is this wrong? Why does he ask them to do that? Three things. First of all, the Jews in this text are defending themselves. I, I pointed out the three times that it says the Jews fought against the other people, but they didn't take any plunder. Now, there's two reasons why the, the biblical writers are telling you that the Jews didn't take any plunder, you know, didn't loot the, the, the Persians. I'm going to get to the second one in a few minutes. But the first reason is this, is because the, the writer of Esther wants you to know that the point of Esther 9 is not that the Jews got free reign to kill whoever they wanted. They were actually just to defend themselves, 
Do you remember Haman's, Haman's first decree was, anybody who wants to can kill the Jews on whatever, the 13th day of Adar next year. Anybody who wants to can kill them. And do you remember what he said, what's the benefit? And you can plunder them. And so remember he, prom- he promised King Ahasuerus, I don't remember the exact amount, I should have looked it up before I got up here, but it was basically worth two-thirds of the Persian Empire's annual income. He says, we can make that much money if we off the Jews. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of material gain to be had here by killing your neighbors who were Jews. You, were, you would be able to like get their property. And that first decree couldn't be done away with. Remember how, remember how Ahasuerus explains to Mordecai? It was, it, it's, set, it's the law of the Medes and Persians. It can't be done with. I can let you have a second decree. This is from last week where I will permit the Jews to defend themselves, legally defend themselves against anybody who would attack them. That's what's going on in chapter 9. The Jews are being attacked. Now, somebody, maybe you'll say, well, if the Jews are allowed to defend themselves, why would people attack them? Well, because the other people, it was a shot at some money. Anytime there's money, people are going to take the risk. Anytime there's that kind of uh, wealth at stake. And the Jews defended themselves, and God allowed them to come out on top. But in case you're thinking that maybe the Jews were like, oh, now we've got free reign to kill whoever we want. That's not what's happening. And the way the biblical writer, well, it says the Jews defended themselves against those who were trying to murder them. But the other way it does is is to emphasize they did not plunder. Their goal was not, this was not a war of aggression. It was a war of self-defense. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. There are stories in the Bible where God tells his people to kill other people. But whenever you see these stories, and we don't have time to get into every, every example of this, but you can go through and read these, and maybe sometime we'll talk about them. Whenever you see God telling his people to kill the Amalekites or to kill so-and-so, it is guaranteed that those people are genuinely horribly evil. Now, I know we all, we're all by nature evil, but there's a difference between the kind of damage the Amalekites are doing and the kind of damage your next-door neighbors who don't know Jesus are doing. Look, God is not telling the Israelites Anybody who doesn't believe in me, you can wipe out. Look, you guys, all of you in here have like next door neighbors or people in your neighborhood who don't, don't believe in Jesus, don't believe in God, but they're genuinely nice people. Like they mow their lawns and you know, they, they, they take care of their pets. And if you ever need something from them, they're more than happy to come and help. And uh, you know, they, they pay their taxes and, they, and, they, and they're kind to their wives and kids. That's not the kind of people that God is saying wipe out. God is telling them to wipe out people who are brutally, horribly evil in the deepest sense of the word. So here's the best way in the Old Testament. If you want the God of Israel to tell his people to destroy you and your family, the best way to do that is human sacrifice. Honestly, that's the people who who get whacked, is the people who sacrifice their kids to the God Moloch. Is everybody, well, I've talked about this here before. Ever, it's, it's, I need to be a little bit graphic just because we're all like, oh yeah, human sacrifice. And then if you watch the movie Apocalypto and you see like it acted out, you're like, oh my goodness, that's disgusting. But if you just say human sacrifice, it's like, oh, he must have been reading some Mesoamerican literature or something like that. It's all sort of like out there and, and you know, it's kind of like safe. Moloch is, the way that Moloch was worshipped, we know this from Greek historians and we also know this from archaeology, the way that the god Molech, one of the favorite gods of the Canaanites, was worshipped is this huge idol to Molech made out of metal. And it's hollow metal. And they would build this massive fire inside of this hollow metal idol. And um, the, the god Molech, the, 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 the idol, would have metal hands held out like this. And of course, it's just filled with fire and the metal just superheats. 
and, and they would take their children. I'm not, this is, I'm not making this up. It's got its own Wikipedia page, I'm sure. I didn't look, but they would take their children and they would put their children in the hands of that metal god so that the children would be incinerated. Not, not, there's no flame or anything, but just the, the, the metal would burn them to death. There's ancient Canaanite writings which talk about, I think I mentioned this before in here, which talk about the, the babies liking it because the, 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 the intense heat would like almost turn the, the, the skin into instant leather and it would stretch their faces up. And there was, a, I don't remember the word for it, but there was like a Canaanite word for the smile that the baby had. That's who God is telling Israelite to wipe out. Not people who jaywalk. People who are anti Human, people who are doing human sacrifice. And I know that it's just a different world than you and I live in. We all live pretty fairly safe existences. But what God is doing is he's using his people to get rid of something that's horribly, horribly damaging. Look, you wouldn't, nobody begrudges the the allied armies for trying to kill Hitler, right? Hitler was so evil that everybody's like, yes, that was just. This is very similar to that, okay? God is using his people to create justice in the land that he wants his people to live in. I'm not saying it's good because murder's never good, but also you know what's worse than murder? Like killing your kids by burning them to death. I'm not, I'm not saying that like attacking Germany in World War II is good, but what's worse than that is the Holocaust. It's this evil thing that God is dealing with in a very, very crisp, let's take care of this because it's so evil manner. Third thing. These people die because they've rebelled against God. This is what happens to all of us. God told Adam and Eve in the garden, on the day that you rebel against me, death sentence. Look, death is not natural. Death is not the cycle of life. Death is not like, well, you know, we all got to go sometime. Death is an alien intruder. Death is something that happens to us because God says, if you disobey me, you're going to die. We've disobeyed him. We're all going to die at some time. You might not die in war. Maybe you will die in war like they did. But all of us are going to die at some time. God kills every single one of us. God makes us alive in Jesus Christ. But to, but to ignore the fact that death is a punishment for sin is to ignore a very, very deep biblical concept. And to ignore how holy God is. To ignore how, how holy God is. So I, I don't necessarily want to defend God here at this moment. But what he's doing is perfectly within his rights as God. It's, he is holy, even as he commands his people to defend themselves, even as he commands his people to kill these other people. Okay, second question. Why is this in the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament? Why don't we do this today? A couple of answers here. Try and do this real quick. The nature of God's people now is pan-ethnic. It's pan-national. It's all different kinds of nations, all different kinds of language groups, all different kinds of ethnicities. Before Jesus came, the nature of God's people was very, very national. God promised Abraham in Genesis 12 through 17 that he was going to send the Messiah through Abraham. And what that means is Abraham's family has to be protected, has to be protected. And when people try to annihilate Abraham's family, the Israelites, the Jews, God acts to defend them because they are the carriers of the offspring. They are the ones through whom Jesus is going to come. And God is willing to defend that nation to the hilt because they are going to bring Jesus into the world. If America were to be wiped out and every American were somehow to die, war, natural disaster, pandemic, whatever, the kingdom of God would still go on. 
Because Christianity is not an American thing. It is now, in Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, a universal thing. He no longer needs a particular nation or ethnic group to preserve the Messiah. The Messiah now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, everybody, male, female, Greek, Jew, slave or free, if you've been baptized into Jesus, you're in the Messiah. Those days are over. There no longer needs to be some sort of military defense. However, second thing, to bring us back to Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. Jesus is the ultimate victim of holy war. Jesus is killed by the forces of the enemy. Jesus is killed by Satan. Judas, uh, uh, Satan enters Judas' heart and convinces Judas to kill, to kill Jesus. Holy war is now over. It's no longer needed. This is one of the big problems with the Crusades, right? Is that this idea that the kingdom of God can be grown by killing somebody else, it's not just cruel and it's not just murder, it's not just wrong. It's actually offensive because it presupposes that the death of Jesus wasn't enough to bring about the kingdom of God. It's gonna take the death of other people. There are no more deaths needed. Jesus died on the cross and the deaths stop. There's no more holy war because he's died for everybody who's involved in the holy war. He's died for everybody. So now that Jesus has died and Jesus has fought the war and won, ironically by dying and then rising from the dead, what does this mean for us? How do we participate in holy war today? Well, of course, we're not going to kill other people, right? Because it's, it's not the era that we live in. We live in the era of the Spirit. Jesus has already died. That's no longer necessary. Two things, and then we'll be done with the holy war part. First of all, we have to realize that our Esther has already represented us self-sacrificed for us, and won the battle. Like the, 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 you know, what Esther accomplishes in the book of Esther is very temporary, right? She becomes the queen. Mordecai, her uncle, becomes second command. But Esther and Mordecai die, and then God's people are back to square one. The Persians are going to get taken over by the Greeks in a few years. The Greeks are going to oppress the Jews. The Greeks are going to get taken over by the Romans in a few years, and the Romans are going to oppress the Jews. It's very, very temporary. What it points us forward to is the great Esther. Jesus, the king, who comes and says, I will go into the throne room and, and, and be prepared to die for my people and say, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to sacrifice myself for my people to realize that we no longer have to fight. You have no more mortal enemies. They've all been defeated at the cross. Jesus died and rose from the dead. There's no more fight. But second, it doesn't mean that we aren't still involved in a holy war. I mean, we're guaranteed we're going to win the holy war because Jesus has already won it for us but we're still involved in the holy war, but it's just different looking. I'm gonna read to you from Ephesians chapter six where Paul uses holy war type language. He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Not that you may be able to stand against the schemes of Rome or against Persia or against the political party that you don't like or against the entertainment moguls who are pumping trash into our culture. That's not your enemy. The enemy is, he goes on to say, we do not wrestle against fresh, flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Our fight in the holy war now is not against other human beings, but against the dark, evil, satanic forces that stand behind all the bad things in the world. So as we, we as Christians, whether it's in your evangelism, always in your evangelism, but when you're, you know, you're dealing with your next door neighbors, whatever it is, 
you never see them as the obstacle. You never see them as the enemy. It's always Satan. It's always the dark cosmic forces of this present age, the powers and the principalities that Paul talks about. The enemy, uh, the enemy is sin and flesh and the devil. This can only be fought. Your holy war can only be fought with a sword, but it's got to be the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Paul goes on in Ephesians 6 to say, take the helmet of salvation, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The holy wars that you and I fight have to be fought with the Word of God. Have to be fought with the Word of God. What is the Word of God? The Word of God is the Bible. The Word of God comes to us in bread and wine form. The Word of God comes to us in liquid form and baptism. Word and sacraments are the tools that we use to fight off the deep cosmic forces. Guaranteed to win, but it's definitely going to be a battle. All right, let's get practical for just a second. What does this mean in your own individual life as you do battle with the cosmic forces of this world? All of you have experienced this, especially those of you who are Christians. You know what this is like. To, 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 to want to be a Christian, to want to worship Jesus, to feed yourself daily on the word, to faithfully come and receive the sacrament, to remember your baptism and to tr- entrust yourself to God, and yet to constantly be doing battle with something that's attacking you. Have you experienced this? How many of you, I mean, seriously, don't raise your hand, but like, how many of you struggle with like anxiety that you're not right with God or just anxiety that people don't like you? And you tell yourself, Jesus has paid for that on the cross. He rose from the dead. Like, I don't need to worry about that. But it keeps on coming after you. How many of you struggle with greed? And you know that the pursuit of money and material things has never made you happy. It's only frustrated you because everybody around you seems to have more. And yet you can't help but be greedy. And like you tell yourself, okay, don't be greedy. Don't trust in money. Trust in Jesus. And yet it keeps coming after you. How many of you have struggled with lust and you're like, I don't want to be lustful, but you just can't shake the porn and it's always coming after you and it chases you down and it's always there oppressing and attacking you? How many of you struggle with bitterness? Like there's feelings about somebody and you know that they're wrong and you know they don't make you happy, they don't make you feel better, but like they're always there and you just, they pop up at the weirdest times and you see something, you, you're watching a, a weird, you're watching a revenge movie or somebody says something and it triggers something, and you're like instantly those feelings of bitterness and like schadenfreude when something bad happens to those people or like the desire that other bad things will happen to them pops up, and you just can't push it away. How many of you have ever been in that moment? Like, honestly, if you haven't, then you're just not, you're like heart's not beating. Check your pulse, as Luther would say, and make sure that you have a beating heart. What do you do in that moment? Here's what you do. You don't say that my enemies are my boss, or my enemies are, again, the entertainment moguls that put out, a, the, my enemies aren't the mainstream media. My enemies aren't the other political party. What you do is you say, so you, you know what that does? It turns our attention to the things that we should not be fighting against. And it takes our attention away from the thing that we should be fighting against, which is Satan's attempt to conquer us. We ignore that. We act like, you know, like my main problem is social media, for instance. I minimize my own particular sins because, well, I sin, all you guys sin, we're going to sin. I mean, Jesus forgives us. I'll go to church and ask for forgiveness. Fight the battle that God has given us in Jesus Christ, the battle against the cosmic forces of this world. Okay, pro tip. How can we do this? Let me just be real specific here. Have you ever, I've just noticed this fairly recently, have you ever been reading the Psalms? And, And the more I grow up, the more I'm like, the Psalms should be a daily part of our devotional diet. 
Have you ever read the Psalms and thought, well, this isn't really about me. There's all this stuff, over half the Psalms are about David or some other psalmist saying, like, my enemies are pursuing me and they're gathered around me and they're taunting me and they want to destroy me. Have you ever read that and been like, I don't have any enemies. What does this have to do with me? If what I'm saying, what the Bible is saying about holy war is true, David is the Messiah. His enemies are not the same as your enemies. Paul insists that your enemies are not the opposing military forces trying to destroy you like they were with David. It's not Saul. It's not the Philistines. Your enemies are the deep, dark forces. Here's your pro tip. Read, read the Psalms. Read the Psalms every day. And when you read the Psalms, you're going to find a bunch of Psalms that are about this and apply those to whatever battle it is that you're fighting. Let me give you an example real quick. And I, I, honestly, I just picked this one at random because there's like a gazillion of them in the Psalms. Psalm 27 says this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. So all these Psalms that talk about our enemies are trying to pursue us and they're coming after us, they will all have language in there about God being a stronghold, God being a fortress. That's why we sang a mighty fortress this morning. God being like a tower, a powerful tower. God being a rock of defense. All this language, military language, why? Because David is talking about holy war. God is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now listen to this. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. I don't have any enemies who are assailing me trying to eat up my flesh. Though an army encamp against me, I don't have any armies encamped against me. Actually, Aaron, yes, you do. Satan is going after you hard. He'd love to sift you like wheat. And to be aware of that and know the battle's been won by Jesus Christ on the cross. I'm going to fight against Satan. Here's what we do. Though the war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. You see what David is doing? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. You see what David is doing? David is saying, here are my enemies, God is going to defeat them. I don't need to fear them, but I do need to go to the refuge. I do need to go to the mighty fortress. I do need to go to the temple. So, pro tip, you're struggling with lust, and it feels like it's just, it's just gonna kill you. You're struggling with bitterness, with greed, with envy, with anxiety, with loneliness, with resentment, whatever it is that you're struggling with. Say, go to the Psalms and read this, and read these evildoers as that. That's who's trying to kill you. Satan is trying to kill you, and he's using all these idolatrous tools. And then go to the rock. Stay in the word. Come and receive the sacrament. Pray to God and say, God, make, make yourself my fortress. Put me in your temple. That's the way we fight this holy war, by constantly going back to word and sacrament. Don't ignore it, though. It's out there. You guys, whether you realize it or not, you are in a battle. A battle that you're guaranteed to win because Jesus died and rose from the dead, but a battle nonetheless. Fight it with the tools that God has given you. Fight it from the fortress that God is himself. Okay, last thing, and this will be quicker than the other one. Holy war leads to holy victory. Definitely holy victory here. The Jews win. Two things I want to point out from this. First of all, it's accomplished by God. Second of all, it's received by faith. First of all, it's accomplished by God. It's accomplished by God's word. Now, pay attention to me just for a few minutes. It's a little bit convoluted. The, Jewish, the medieval Jewish scholar Abraham Saba says this about this story. He says that Esther is the first time in the Bible that the Jews 
are called upon to rely purely on God's word and nothing else. Here's what he means. He says this. This great deliverance, the deliverance of Esther, the deliverance of Purim, achieved without miracles, was the reason the Jews finally came to rest their faith on the Torah, the word of God, rather than miraculous displays of his power. You know what's fantastic about Esther? I'm just kind of repeating something I said several weeks ago. Is that, what is Joseph trusting in when Joseph is in Egypt? Well, one of the things that makes it easier for Joseph is that God himself is giving him visions. What about Daniel? Daniel also trusting, but it's maybe a little bit easier for him because the lion's den incident, which is a miraculous event, the, the, uh, the fiery furnace incident, God is doing these big miraculous things. Moses, how is Moses trusting? Well, Moses lifts his staff in the waters part. It's easy to say to, to Moses, well, easy for you, you know? Like you hold your staff up and miracles happen. Like God will sometimes use miracles, but sometimes in your life, you'll be like Esther and Mordecai. There's no miracle in the story of Esther. Again, I've said this every week now. God's name isn't even mentioned in the story of Esther. Not one time. What's the point? The point is, is that all I have to go on is God's word. Now, where do I get that from? One of the key points in the this, in, in this story is Esther chapter four. You remember this from several weeks ago? Mordecai goes to Esther and he says, look, you've got to help us out here. You've got to go into Xerxes and, and Asherus, I'm sorry, and say, bail my people out. And Esther's like, I don't know if I can do that. And Mordecai says, well, you really have to or we're in a jam. And here's what, here's what Mordecai says to her. He says this, if Esther, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. What made Mordecai so confident that would relief that relief and redemption would arise from the Jews from another place? What made him so confident? He'd read the Bible. Genesis 12 through 17 said, God said, I'm going to give my offspring through your family, Abraham. God promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that your offspring, David, will sit on the throne of the kingdom forever. Mordecai knew that if God is who God says he is, there was no way the Jews were going to get wiped out. And so he was confident to say to Esther, I know the Bible. We're going to survive. We're going to survive. Faith in God's word, which is another backdoor way that the writer of Esther lets you know that it's actually God who accomplishes all this. God who accomplishes all this. It's accomplished by him. Second thing is, uh, this is also a little bit, uh, some twists and turns here, so pay attention. It's accomplished by the coming king, by the coming priest king, Jesus. Now, where do we get this from here? First of all, Esther, the story of Esther is a story about Jesus. Esther is the royalty who sacrifices herself in order to rescue her people. Jesus is the one who fulfills this. Where do we get this from this story? Well, I mentioned to you earlier that three times in this story, three times in chapter 9, the writer says that the Jews did not take plunder from uh, the Persians. Okay, I told you why, too, that that was because the Jews are just defending themselves. They're not trying to, like, gain territory or power or material wealth. Do you remember another time when the Jews were oppressed by a foreign power in the Old Testament and God delivered them and told them to take plunder? Did somebody say Egypt? It was very, uh, maybe, maybe I just imagine hearing that. Uh, Exodus chapter 12. God tells Israel when they're leaving Egypt, Moses tells, Moses tells the people of Israel, go to all your Egyptian neighbors, you're not stealing from them, go to all your Egyptian neighbors and ask them for material goods. Precious, precious jewels, uh, gold, like precious fabrics, expensive fabrics. And so right before, the, right before Passover, right before the Exodus, 
all the, all the Israelites go to their neighbors and say, can you give us stuff? And they do. And Exodus 12, verse 36 says, thus Israel plundered the Egyptians. Okay, now remember back to the story. Why did they plunder the Egyptians? Do you remember why in the story? Well, the main reason is this. And you, you, that happens in Exodus 12. You finally get it when you get to Exodus chapter 25. The main reason is this, is because they had nothing. They were slaves. But God was determined that they were going to build a tabernacle where he could come and dwell, a special place that was beautiful and expensive. And in Exodus 25, he says, all that stuff that you got, come and donate it because we're going to build this beautiful tabernacle. God wants to live amongst us. And that's what he did. In Exodus chapter 40, God comes and lives in this beautiful, expensively built tabernacle. And he dwells with them. His presence is with them. He reveals himself just to them. He forgives their sins at this tabernacle. And when you get to the book of Esther, and the writer emphasizes, we're having another Exodus event where God's people are delivered from the pagan enemies who have enslaved them. However, this time they took no plunder. One of the things that the writer of Esther is saying is that God is saying to the writer of Esther, we don't need another tabernacle. Yes, the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. It's in the process of being rebuilt, this building is. But actually, the building's not going to be eventually important. Remember, Esther's probably the last book written in the Hebrew Bible. What's it looking forward to? Not Herod's temple. It's looking forward to the real temple. Jesus himself, God himself in flesh, who tabernacles, John chapter 1 says with us, who comes here and reveals God to us, who comes here and is the only place on earth where forgiveness of sins can happen. Jesus is the temple. And when the, when the writer emphasizes that, we, that no plunder was taken, it's sort of a tacit way of saying, we don't need a new temple because a new temple is coming and that temple is Jesus. This is, it's a, the holy victory is accomplished by God. It's accomplished by the power of his word. It's accomplished by this coming priest king. And finally, it's received by faith. And I, I promise I'm almost done. Chapter 9, verses 23 through 26 says this. I love this. This is one of my favorite parts about this story. The Jews accepted what they had started to do, what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews. Oh, by the way, um, spiritual warfare. There's a hint of spiritual war warfare in here. Do you remember all the, uh, the weirdo names that I read of Haman's ten sons? Actually, those, like a lot of scholars and commentaries I read this week, pointed out that those 10 names are actually, many of them are either identical to or allude to the names of Persian pagan gods. And one of the things that's happening is this battle, Esther versus Haman, is a defeat of Persians' pagan gods, just like in the Exodus. Anyway, uh, back to uh, Haman in verse 24. Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term poor. Term poor. I, I absolutely love this. You know what, do you guys remember what poor is? Haman takes dice and throws dice, game of chance, to decide when are we going to wipe out the Jews? C can you think of a deeper more profound, more devastating trauma than somebody rolling dice to randomly decide. I read, read a couple weeks ago about um, one of the things that a particular uh, commandant of Auschwitz would do is if there was trouble in the camp, he would line up the Jewish prisoners by families and make them count 10. And every 10th person, 
he would kill right there. Can you imagine the horror of like the randomness of that? This game of chance. We're going to die because this guy was playing a dice game. How traumatic is this? What do the Jews do with that? They take the name of that dice game and they turn it into the name of the festival by which they celebrate the sovereign, saving love of their God. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm repeating something I said several weeks ago, but I want to say this again, and then I'll be done. This is super important, I think, and, and one of the main lessons of the book of Esther. Some of you are trapped. You're absolutely trapped. You feel like, you feel like God is nowhere near you. You feel a gap between you and your spouse, or between you and your best friend, or between you and your parents, or between you and your kids. And one of the reasons is, is because you have genuinely experienced trauma in your life. And you refuse to let God have that. And the reasons are good is because you're scared that if I let God have that trauma, if I say that horrible thing that somebody did to me, I'm going to let you have that God. You're scared that by saying that, you're going to say, it wasn't a big deal. I'm just going to have to be like, it's okay, I'm going to let it go. That's not what the Jews do. The Jews don't say, oh, genocide, trying to murder us. Uh, you know, you must have had a bad day. It's okay. I'm gonna, I'm, it's all right between me and you. I'm going to let it go. That's not what the Jews are saying. What they are saying, though, is that trauma was horrible. It was evil. We are going to defend ourselves against that trauma. And yet, that trauma's name is going to be the name of our remembrance of God's grace throughout in perpetuity, throughout generations. And what, what a lot of you need to do is you need to face the trauma that you've experienced. People have done bad things to you and have damaged you. And you need to say along with the Jews, along with Joseph, remember from Genesis chapter 50, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You are not saying that it's okay. What you are saying is that God's loving, sovereign power is big enough. By the cross of Jesus Christ, it's big enough to take the bad things that have happened to you and turn them into good. And only if you can get to the point where you can celebrate annually your trauma, I am not saying call it good. You're not calling it good. But annually, you're going to celebrate God's victory over the bad things that have been done to you by the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. At that point, you will be released, like Joseph, to say, people do bad stuff to me. They mean it, mean it for evil. My God loves me so much. The blood of Jesus Christ is so powerful. The Holy Spirit is so strong that God means that stuff for good. All right, stand with me and let's pray. Then we'll have communion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being such a good God and for loving us. And we all come here this morning, Father, as deeply wounded people. And on top of that, we are people who deeply wound others and have deeply wounded others over the course of our life. And Father, there's really nowhere we can stash all that trauma, all that sin, all that brokenness. Father, will you convince us this morning by the power of your word and especially as we receive your sacrament, Will you convince us afresh, Father, that you have covered up all that sin and brokenness with the blood of your Son, that you've turned it into new creation, that you've given us life. May we, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, may we be poor in people. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you would help us to, like Esther, like Mordecai, like all the Jews, Father, that, that you would help us to be agents for your kingdom in the, the pagan environment that you've put us in. Father, our culture does not love you. It does not recognize you. And yet here we are, us and so many other churches like ours, worshiping you, colonies of you, Father. Will you allow us to be your agents here in Glen Carbon, here in Edwardsville, to bring about your kingdom in a culture that doesn't want you? 
Lord, in your mercy. Father, we give thanks and praise you this morning for all of our sister LCMS churches, all of our sister churches who, who right now are fellowshipping around your throne along with us, who are coming to the rail and receiving your son's body and blood just like us, who have heard your word read and proclaimed just like we have. May we join together with them, Father, in seeing your kingdom grow. Father, would you also be with every single Bible-believing church in Edwardsville and Glen Carbon? Would you bring us to a place of unity? Would you help us all to be gathered around your word, studying your word, seeing where you want us to go and, and, and where you want us to lead us, where you want to lead us? Would, would you grow your kingdom? May we all together see your kingdom grow here in Edwardsville and Glen Carbon. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I want to pray especially this morning for everyone in here whose mind started racing and whose heart started thumping when I began talking about past trauma, who maybe felt bitterness rise up or fear or loneliness or brokenness. Father, would you meet us with the power of your resurrected son in each one of those moments and convince us that you've got it, that you're taking care of us, that we're in the palm of your hand, that the things that have happened to us are working out for our good, our sanctification, and for your glory. Would you be with each one of us this morning that's mourning, each one of us that's hurting physically, each one of us that's hurting emotionally, hurting financially, lots of us with relationship stress and brokenness, lots of us with anxiety and struggling with depression. Would you meet us in each one of those places, Father? I pray especially this morning that you would be with the family of Doris Lukert, Kai's grandma who passed away yesterday, that you would bring hope and comfort to him and to uh, his grandfather especially. And remind us all again, Father, of the hope that we have in the resurrection of your son Jesus, that you are going to make all things, including our bodies, new someday. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only come and pray these prayers to you because of the shed blood of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave up his life to rescue us, who rose from the dead to fill us with new life and with Holy Spirit power, who has ascended on high and now fills all things. It's to his name that we give praise and glory. Here before your throne, Father, we pray this in his name. Amen. Confess with me, if you can, the words of our faith found in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen.
bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Don't forget to look around. Find somebody that you don't really have a close connection to and start building that relationship. Go in peace.